Now, a former missionary told of how he observed two rugged, powerful mountain goats which met on a narrow pathway joining two mountain ridges. On one side was a chasm 1,000 feet deep, and the other side a steep cliff uh, rising straight up. So narrow was the trail that there was no room to uh, turn around or go past one another, or even uh, that the goats might back up without falling. What would they do? Well, the missionary, he observed, and finally, instead of fighting for the right to pass, one of the goats knelt down and made himself as flat as possible, and the other goat walked over him. And so both proceeded on safely on their way. Now, that is a story. It's not a story from the animal kingdom to illustrate that we must let people walk over us. But rather, it makes the point that it's often by one Christian taking a lowly place and giving way to their brother and sister on a particular issue that both can keep pressing on. Now, Paul's theme really since verse 27 of chapter 1 was a need for unity among the believers at Philippi, and he expanded on that in chapter 2. We've already looked at the opening four verses, and in them we have seen the modus for unity, and especially in verse number 1. Since you and I have been the recipients of such grace and love, then we ought to express the same for others. Last time we were considering verses 2 to 4, and we looked at the marks and the means of unity. In verse 2, we have the marks of a people who are united. They will be like-minded. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to have the exact same thoughts, but they will possess the same thought processes. They will have the same attitude. They will also be marked by the same love. There will be harmony of feeling as well as harmony of thinking. They will be of one accord. They will be one-souled, as the word literally means, having the same passion, and that will be seen in their possession of one mind as they strive for the same purpose. Now, we went on to consider the means of how this unity is maintained in verses 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, verse 5 is really a continuation of the means. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul here, he applies the lesson before he states it. In verse 5, we have the exhortation, and in the following verses, we have the example. Now, verse 5, it naturally flows out of verses 3 and 4, those previous verses, and then there was the need to regard others and their condition and their particular needs. And, of course, there is none who had a heart for others, who had a mind for others, more than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. All that He did in His role as mediator was for others. Now, Paul gives this exhortation in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, for a specific reason. There's a practical purpose in it. He's not just introducing this theologically rich section concerning Christ in order to supply them with information. He's not arguing some doctrinal point or abutting some heresy. Rather, he is seeking to cultivate a humble spirit by setting before them the one who is the supreme model of humility in order that they might in some measure, in some degree, imitate and learn from Christ. This then will naturally promote and nurture unity 
among them. And this is what we need to keep in mind as we make our way through this portion. There's a practical, pointed purpose in Paul saying all these wonderful and glorious things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as our minds are drawn towards the incarnation of Christ this morning, I want to consider verses 6 to 8 under the title of an Alexander McLaren sermon, The Descent of the Word. Because that's what we here have here in these three verses, the descent of the Word. I want to do this under three headings, and verses 6, 7, and 8 divide nicely into three. In verse 6, we notice, we notice the heights from which He came. In verse 7, we have the depths to which He descended. And in verse 8, the lengths to which He went. The heights, the depths, and the lengths. Now, we're only going to look at verse 6 this morning. Looking at a section, verses 6, 7, and 8, under that general heading, the descent of the Word, but just verse 6 this morning, the heights from which He came. Verse 6 begins with the pronoun, who. Who. An identification of the who is supplied by the previous verse, Christ Jesus. And in verse 6, here we have the beginning, really, of the incarnation, where it all begins. We have the heights from which He descended in order that He might redeem our souls. Here we are given elevated and exalted views of the One who condescended for our sakes, for the good of others. Now, in verse 6, we have three things presented to us concerning Christ that give us some conception of His grandeur and His majesty. And keep in mind that Paul is that practical application in view for the believers at Philippi and for us. Since one who was so high humbled himself for their sakes, well, then they like him should do the same for others. Now, the first thing we notice from verse 6 this morning is the eternality of Christ. We have the eternality of Christ. Here's the heights from which He came. This comes across to us in the verb being. Who being? The word used here for being, it's used 59 times in the New Testament, and every time it is a reference to a prior existence. It denotes the continuation of a previous state or existence to live, to behave. One lexicon defines a word as continuing to be that which one was before. And Paul uses a very strong word here, which carries our thoughts back not only to a state that preceded Bethlehem and the manger, but it takes us to timeless eternity. There was one man who made this wonderful comment on the Incarnation. The whole strange conception of birth as being the voluntary act of the person born. Now remember you and I, when we were conceived and born, it was an involuntary act on our behalf. But the whole strange conception of birth as being the voluntary act of the person born and as being the most stupendous instance of condescension in the world's history necessarily rests on the clear conviction that the one born had a prior existence so lofty that it was an all but infinite descent to become man. Paul begins with the most emphatic assertion that he who bore the name of Jesus had an existence before he was born. 
Now, pre-existence, as some cults would like to point out, does not necessarily mean eternality, and that's correct. They would claim that the Son of God is the first created being of God, God created before the world began, but that goes against all the internal evidence of Scripture and the claims of Jesus Christ Himself. You can refuse, you can reject, you can uh, label them as heretics, those who are of those cults that deny that Jesus Christ possessed eternality. Because as a Son of God, He did. Now all we have, as I said, the internal evidence of the Bible and the claims of Jesus Christ Himself. Take, for example, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And that's a text that's often turned to this time of year. Micah 5 and the verse 2. We read there, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee he shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now here the prophet, he declared that the deliverer and ruler of God's people would be born in the small town of Bethlehem. Because humanity is born, but deity is not, the first part of the prophet's declaration revealed that the Messiah would be a human being. But the second part, it, it makes the assertion of the prophet, he asserts that the same persons going forth have been from of old, from everlasting, literally from the days of eternity. His going forth from eternity and into time. His humanity, it did have a beginning through the miraculous conception and His birth, but concerning Christ's preexistent being, He is eternal, He is without beginning. The second text is often used and read at this time of year, it also contains a direct statement about the eternality of Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 and the verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, in a context describing the future rule of the Messiah, this passage applies the name, the Everlasting Father, to Him. And this name designates Him as the possessor of eternity. One who is from everlasting, the Everlasting Father, one who would rule His people like a loving, faithful Father. We also have the direct statement of Christ concerning its pre-existence and eternality in John chapter 8 and the verse 58. And he said to those of his day, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He did not say I was. Yes, that would include pre-existence. But he said, I am. Now here in that text, John chapter 8 and verse 58, Christ assumes the name by which God revealed himself unto Moses a name which denotes continued existence without respect to time. Now, we divide time into the past, the present, and the future, but by this name, Christ reveals that He does not measure His existence in that manner, but that He possesses a continued and unchangeable existence as the great I Am. 
another text. Hebrews chapter 7 and the verse 3. Concerning Melchizedek, and we read there, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now whether you believe that that individual is a type of Christ or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, it does not matter with regard to this point of eternality. The point is Christ possesses eternality because of the pre-existence as the Son of God before the world began, before He was born. He stepped out of eternity uh, where He existed in blessed communion with the Father and the Spirit, and He stepped into history to walk among men. Here is the height from which he came. And therefore, you and I, we are to possess this mind. Can you and I not give off our time, the one for the other, when we consider that he left eternity for time in order that he might suffer and bleed and die for us in the history of this world? So we have the eternality of Christ. But secondly, in verse 6, we have the essence of Christ. The essence of Christ we have further revealed to us in this verse, the nature of His pre-existence. For one to have eternality of necessity must mean that they are God. And this is emphasized by the next statement, who being in the form of God. Now our English word form, which is used here to translate the Greek word, it can be misleading, for it suggests shape or outward appearance, something that could be changeable or something that could be altered. But the Greek word, it's morph. Morph, and it refers not so much to the outward appearance, but to the essential nature of someone or something, their abiding characteristics and attributes. And so, in the form of God, it speaks of Christ's essence or nature as God. As God. Only God can be in the form of God. Man was made in the likeness of God, but man is not in the form of God. Therefore, Christ is no mere man. He is the God-man. This is the essence, the nature of Jesus Christ. In Paul's day, the word morph, it was used for a Roman stamp. In official government documents, they were sealed with wax. And while the wax was hot, you know the illustration, they would press that ring or the stamp that bore the emperor's insignia upon it. And the impression made in the wax was an exact representation of the insignia on the ring. And that's really the relationship that Jesus Christ bears to the Father. Christ is the exact representation of who and what God is because Jesus Christ is God. We have that truth expressed in Hebrews chapter 1 and the verse 3 where it says, The Son of God, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. Now in this statement, in the form of God, we have a strong and a clear affirmation of Christ's deity. Yes, He had a pre-existence and He had an eternality. Of necessity means He's God, but here we have an express statement, a direct statement, that Christ is God. You see, it seems every now and again that a new notion, which is usually amounts to nothing more than an, an old heresy repackaged, 
it springs up and it makes the claim that Christ is not God, nor did he ever claim to be God. Well, we've already seen that Christ spoke of his preexistence, of his eternality. He said he was the I am. Christ did in the days of his flesh, he did make the claim that he is God. Christ made a statement in John chapter 10 and the verse 30. That he and his father were one, the Jews, they took up stones to stone him. And the reason why they did that's made clear in verse 33. It says there, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. The Jews knew that Christ claimed that he was God. Christ claimed to be God. John's gospel, it seems to be a particular concern and burden of the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to leave the reader in absolutely no doubt that Jesus Christ is God. His proposition lies at the very beginning of that book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then to demonstrate Christ's Godhood, he goes on to say, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, John goes on to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, a glory which demonstrated that he was the eternally begotten Son of God. He did the same to the church of Colossae. Colossians chapter 1 and the verse number 15. He spoke of Christ as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Chapter 2 in the verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christianity is a tremendously simple and yet infinitely profound truth that God became man, that Christ is God manifest in the flesh. And that's where an understanding of the descent of the Word begins. This is where we get some understanding of humility, of what it means to become lowly for the sake of others. We need to start in the heights of His splendor, of His being, of His person, if we're ever to understand just how actually low He came. It starts with the recognition that Jesus Christ preexisted as the eternal Son of God, possessing the very essence of God, though true God of true God, light of light eternal, the womb of the virgin he hath not abhorred, Son of the Father, begotten, not created. What tremendous theology in that great carol. Never lose sight of the practical import of Paul's words. It was to impress upon his readers To have the same mind of Christ. Here's one who was so high. The essence of Christ. God of very God. Yet coming so low. For those so undeserved. So we have 
thought about the eternality of Christ and the essence of Christ. Finally, this morning, quickly, the equality of Christ. Verse 6 goes on to say, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, while the phrase in the form of God, it speaks of Christ's equality of essence and nature, equal with God, it speaks of His equality of glories and rights and prerogatives. The word equal, it's an interesting word. It's the Greek word isis. It means to be exactly equal in size and quantity and quality and character and number, whatever it might be. And, you know, we have that, we have that English word, isosceles triangle. And you know what that is, children. That's a triangle with two equal sides. And so there's that word, that Greek word, coming into our English language. The word it means equal. He was equal with God, not only in nature, but in splendor. In splendor. Now there are two ways in which we can consider these words, thought it not robbery. Those words have been the discussion of men, much discussion over the years. And I don't think you lose anything, nor is there anything contradictory by considering the two approaches. And I'll leave these with you. Firstly, this is how some men have understood, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Firstly, Christ did not think himself guilty of improper invasion of what did not belong to him, nor did he consider it unjust to take to himself the glories, the rights, and the prerogatives of God, since he himself was God. He assertively said, I and my Father are one. You know, it's the highest degree of robbery. For any mere man or any mere creature to pretend to be equal with God or to profess themselves to be one with the Father. This is for a man to rob God, not in tithes and offerings, but in, in the rights of his Godhead. And isn't that exactly what sinful man does today? He puts himself in the place of God, deciding what's right and what's wrong. Man today, well, he's all about his rights, his prerogatives. No book, no God is going to tell me what to do. No book, no God's going to tell me what's right, what's wrong. And that's nothing other than pride. The opposite of humility. And the proud look, the proud look stands at the head of the list of the seven abominable sins that God lists in the book of the Proverbs. It is the spirit and the nature of their father, the devil. You remember there was that angelic being called Lucifer in, in heaven, thought to be the worship leader, the highest of the angels, but that was not enough to satisfy him. And we read in Isaiah chapter 14 that he said this, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Listen, I will be like the Most High. What did he want? He wanted equality with God. For Lucifer, that was something to be seized at. It was something to be snatched at. It was something he sought to rob because it did not belong to him. And instantly he was cast out of heaven, brought down to hell and to the sides of the pit. Oh, sinner, as you sit here in your pride this morning, 
No God to rule over me. No Christ to submit to. As you sit here this morning, will you not humble yourself lest you are brought down to the pit or to the sides of hell? You need to humble yourself. Christ did not think it robbery because for him equality with God was not something to be snatched at. It was not something that he needed to rip away from someone to whom it legitimately belonged because it was his by nature. He had a glory with the Father before the world began, as we're told in John chapter 17. And that's the first way we can consider those words, thought it not robbery. But secondly, you can interpret it this way, that though the Son of God had equality of glory and rights with the Father, it was not something that he clung to and was unwilling to relinquish. He was. He was willing to veil his glory in our humanity, as Charles Wesley put it in his carol. And by becoming the mediator of the covenant, the Son of God submitted himself to the will of the Father, and thus he gave up his own prerogatives as God. Now, what do I mean by that? How can he, still being God, how can he give up his prerogatives as God? Well, I'll give you a few examples. Take, for instance, the fact that God is eternal and cannot die. God only hath immortality, as Paul wrote to young Timothy. Death cannot touch God. If death could touch God, death would be greater than God. And yet, the mystery and the wonder of it, as the God-man, Christ could. And Christ did die. He gave up that prerogative as God. Take another example. God is light, and He dwells in that light which is unapproachable by man. And yet, once again, as the God-man, Christ hung upon the cross in the darkness of Calvary as the wrath of God was poured out upon Him for our sin. When He was abandoned by the Father, God is light. He dwells in light unapproachable. And yet, as the God-man, He was shrouded in the darkness of Calvary for our sakes. That's what it was to give up, to be willing to relinquish his glories, his rights, his prerogatives for sinners like you and me. Blessed be his name. He could have held on to his equality of glory as God the Son, and yet for our sakes, for a season, he waived his rights. He made himself low that we would make our way to God. Albert Barnes made this comment, instead of retaining this equality by an earnest effort or by a grasp, which he was unwilling to relinquish, he chose to forgo the dignity and to assume the humble condition of a man. And that's the incredible message of the gospel. That's the supreme model of humility. In Christ, we have the greatest example of unselfishness and sacrificial love for others. If anyone had the right to be self-centered, it was Jesus Christ. 
If ever there was a person in this world who had the right to assert their rights, it was Jesus Christ. He had existed throughout all eternity as God, and yet from those heights He came for you and me out of the ivory palaces and into this world of woe. Only His great eternal love made my Savior go. And this is the mind that you and I ought to possess. Paul knew that if the Philippians avoided being puffed up with their own self-importance, if they weren't insistent on getting their own way and having their own rights, then they would. They would have that blessed unity that would make his joy complete. And the same is true for us. Christ is set before us as the challenge as the example, as the one to imitate, that we might be followers of Him. This morning we began to consider the descent of the Word. We have focused on verse 6, the heights from which He came. The next time, Lord willing, when we come back to it, we will think about the depths to which He descended and the lengths to which He went. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts for his own name's sake. Let's unite in prayer. Our God and our Father, we bow before thee and we thank thee for the person of thy dear Son, We thank Thee, Lord, for what we have considered concerning Him. We thank Thee for His eternality. We thank Thee, Lord, that He existed with Thee in eternity before the world began in that blessed and glorious communion and fellowship. We thank Thee, Lord, for His essence. We thank Thee that He is fairy God of fairy God. And Lord, we do rejoice and give Thee praise and thanksgiving. O God, that He stepped out of eternity and into time. And we thank Thee, Lord, for His equality. And even though He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, that He was willing to come for a sinner like me. Bless the word this morning. Lord, we pray that Thou would humble sinners in their pride. Make them bow before Thee. Bend a knee, submit to Christ. Thank Thee for Thy presence with us this morning. We pray for the service this evening. Bring us back again to think about the One, the One who came from, for, from such heights to such depths and went to such lengths to redeem a sinner from going down to the pit. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of thy people throughout the rest of this day and forevermore. I ask this all in Christ's precious and his worthy name. Amen.